So uh, I'm going to take a break from Romans for this week and next week to, I know, my apologies, Mom. Uh, I think it'll still be good. It's all right. Just to talk about the question of who is Jesus, which I think is the most important question a person can ask. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, I would say this is a question we all need to be asking and answering with as much clarity as we can. And so that's the question I'm going to ask and answer this week and next week, okay? Um, and I've been, let me just, because I'm going to pray in just a second, because um, as I've been working on this and this morning praying about it, I just keep having this picture of Jesus in Revelation 1. If you remember, um, he, he appears not as a baby in a manger or as, uh, a man on a cross, he appears with eyes that are shining like white light. He's radiating the glory of God. And he's walking amongst the lampstands, which represents the churches. And he's in his like full glory, right? And that's what I want to happen this morning. As I want it to be like Jesus walks in the room. And I now, if it's in the flesh, I, I'm, I'm going to freak out, okay? Uh, but we see him with spiritual sight, right, with eyes of faith, and that sometimes that vision of him gets blurry, depending on what's happening in your life. It kind of erodes over time. Life hits you hard. You, you're surrounded by, by doubt sometimes in our culture that kind of comes against this idea and you still believe him, but it's like his, the picture gets a little fuzzy, right? And I, what I want to happen is for the Holy Spirit to come, I'm going to pile up a bunch of dry kindling with the Word of God. And I want the Holy Spirit to light that thing on fire in your heart. And that wherever you're at on that spectrum of what don't believe all the way to I've been a Christian for 30 years and I'm all in, that something would happen in your heart where it would be clearer, that you'd see him in, in high definition this morning. And I can't do that. You can't. I can pile the kindling up, and I'm going to have a good time doing that. But then I want to step back and just let the Holy Spirit set the thing on fire. So that's what I want to pray for before we get in, because this is familiar territory for most Christians. So we need the Holy Spirit to do that. So can we just pause for a minute before we get into it and and do that. Holy Spirit, I do ask you right now that you would set the word ablaze in our hearts. And that as we look at your word and ponder these really deep ideas that Jesus would come into focus with incredible detail and clarity. God, would you expand our hearts to be able to see it. And to see you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the first question, uh, or the first answer to the question of who is Jesus, is Jesus is God. And that's where we're at this morning. And I want to hit you with as much scripture as we can stand, okay? Which for me, personally, is quite a bit, all right? Um, hopefully you are the same, all right? So 
Um, I want to look at what the Bible says about Jesus, and I want to take us through three chunks of Scripture, starting with Hebrews 1, then we'll do Colossians 1, and then John chapter 1. And we'll talk about each one. You could do multiple sermons on each one, so don't get frustrated if I'm leaving stuff out. I'm just going to have to, okay? We'll start with John 1, the first five verses. says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Man, i got to get through this sermon. I'm just in the first verse. So the Apostle John, who walked around with Jesus and knew him, he's, he chose to use this really interesting Greek word here. In, in your Bible, in your English Bible, it says word with a capital W. And if you don't know what's going on there, that's a confusing sentence, okay? It's because it's hard to translate with just one English word, okay? The Greek word there is logos, and it was a term that was used in a lot of different contexts. Every language has words like this that we use in different contexts that have different shades of meaning. So I'm going to give you a quick review about different ways that word was used, and then we'll see that John is pulling all of it together in one thing. Okay, so first the Stoics used the word logos to refer to the rational principle by which everything exists. They thought that there was this, there, there's one sort of idea, and we're trying to figure out what that idea is, that sort of makes sense of the universe, that makes everything make sense, makes everything work. There's some principle, and, and we're going to sort out what that principle is, and if we do that, we'll understand everything, Right? They use the word logos to refer to that. It is, logos was how they described the essence of the rational human soul. No other God existed but the existence of logos. Philo, a first century philosopher and contemporary of John, used the term logos to describe the ideal man from which all other humans were derived. It's a similar concept, but it was this ideal person that no one's ever really seen, but it exists in some kind of philosophical sense, and we're all trying to get attain the level of what that perfect person is, okay? Others use the term logos to refer to inner thought or reason. Your ability to look at the world and make sense of things is the logos. What about the Jews? This would have been Paul's primary context. In the Old Testament, it often speaks of the word or the logos of God being the sole expression of God's will, power, and rescuing activity. And the word of the Lord came. And they rescued them or spoke to them. or it, That's always how does God do things. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. So how does God do things? He speaks. How did God create the universe? He spoke. His word came out of his mouth, and that is the expression of his will and his power. When God thinks a thing, he also does the thing. And the way he does the thing is he speaks to things. God doesn't deliberate. He just knows. Everything he thinks is right. He doesn't have to think to himself, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, shouldn't say that, shouldn't do that. 
that's a bad idea. I think I'll do this. That's a human problem. You think dumb things all the time, and then you don't do those dumb things most of the time. You do the right thing, but you deliberate, and you discuss. When God thinks, he wills, and when he wills, he speaks, and that's how he does things. So John then personifies Logos to mean Jesus Christ. Jesus was the perfect and complete self-expression of the Father. In his nature, he carries the full will and power of God. And when the Father opened his mouth to express to us the fullness of who he is, what he spoke was Jesus. When he said, I'm going to tell humanity, I'm going to tell them who I am in my fullness. And out of his mouth comes the word, capital W, Jesus, his son. John was being clever, saying to the Stoics that Jesus is the principle by which everything exists and makes everything hold together, and we'll see that in a second. And to the philosophers, Jesus is the ideal man from which all other humans are derived and hope to attain to. This word, or Christ, was both with God and was God. We'll say, how is that possible? We've been trying to sort that out for centuries. I'm not going to go into the Trinity this morning, all right, completely. But the with here is only used in Greek when referring to two persons in a close relationship. God and Jesus are together. When you would say in Greek, these people are together, you would say they're with each other. We kind of have a similar way of doing it in English. So God and Jesus are together, yet at the same time, Jesus is also as much God as the Father is God. Jesus is just as much God as God is God. It's amazing. Jesus is the light of the world, John says. John alludes to the beginning, the beginning of time and creation. Imagine it for a minute. There's nothing. There's no sun. There's no light. And then God turns on the sun. What happens to the darkness? The darkness is gone. Because the light's on. You do this at home at night. When it's dark outside and the lights are off and it's dark, you turn the light on and there's no battle. In that moment when you go clink or flip the switch on or whatever you do to turn your lights on now, there's the Wi-Fi is involved now. But There's no battle in your living room when the light comes on between the light and the dark. And who will win? Maybe, maybe the light bulb will beat the darkness and you stand there and wait and hope that the, that the light wins so that you can see to get to the fridge. This is Jesus. When he comes into the world, there is no battle being waged between him and the darkness. The light got turned on and it stays on forever because that's who Jesus is. He is God. He is the light. We do not live in a dualistic world of good versus evil. That is a lie. We live in a world where there is either light or the absence of light. It doesn't mean the devil doesn't exist. It's just that he's so puny compared to God. He is not a power God has to reckon with. He controls him. And he is so powerful that with a word from his mouth, Satan would cease to exist. He exists on God's time. 
not on his own. God is not fighting an epic battle against the devil where some days God wins and others the devil, you know, the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other, and who will win? There's no contest. Jesus does not have to fight any harder against the devil than the light has to fight against darkness. This is what's happening with that baby in a manger. Don't be deceived by the warm fuzzies of the manger and the baby. Because what's really happening there is the light has come into the world and there is no more darkness. Let's move on to Hebrews 1. You'll see a theme here. He says, The first two verses, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So Jesus has inherited all things from the father. All the things. Every single thing that can be had, Jesus has it. Everything that God has, we could say more specifically, Everything the Father has, all that power, all that authority, all that knowledge, all that wisdom, all that perfection and holiness, everything he has, he has given it to Jesus, and he has held nothing back, nothing. And so he gives that to Jesus, to the baby in the manger, can't even feed himself, but in him is everything that the Father has. He also says that it was Christ that was in some sense hands-on in creation. This is a mind-blower. Jesus, before the incarnation, before he had a physical body, was there at the very beginning doing the creating. He says actually doing it through Jesus. That's a fun, wonder what that looked like. Jesus is having a party. Hey, let's make a platypus. Jesus says, well, Son, or the son says, well, what's that? He says, I don't know. Let's make it weird. <laughs> It'll take them forever to figure that thing out. Let's put a bunch of stuff down in the dark at the bottom of the ocean where they can't find it until like 2024. Nobody even, they won't even know it's there but us. It'll be like a secret. And we'll get a kick out of watching these weird things in the dark. And one day they'll find it. They'll go, what is that? He's having this thing back and forth. Jesus was there. The baby in the manger was there before there was anything. And out of his mouth came words that created, that put the stars in their place. And he thought of you. He said, I'm going to make you. You're in his heart as he's making the platypus. He's thinking about Lindsay. Ah, she's going to be great. Let's put her together too. Not that she's as weird as the platypus. <laughs> Let's read on. Verse 3 to 4, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just a word. After making purifications for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So let's break this down. He's the radiance of the glory of God. This makes me immediately think of Revelation chapter 4, which we're going to read at the end. There's this picture of the throne room of God, and out from God, sitting on this throne, is this light that's like hard to describe. It's multiple colors, reds and greens and blues, like a rainbow of shimmering light, and it's just radiating from him. There's no light bulb. There's no sun. It's just the Father being this being his unfiltered self and just radiating light out from him. Well, what is the light? The light is Christ. He's the radiance of the glory of God. That light of glory shining out from the throne, throne Hebrews says, is Jesus. The exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is made of the same stuff, the same divine essence as the Father. Jesus and the Father are of the same material. The same composition in their essence. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus. Not only, or he not only originated the universe at creation, but he now holds it all in continuing existence. Not by effort, but just by his will, by the word of his power. All of your the material that makes you up in your physical body, in your soul, your very essence. If he stopped holding you together in existence, you would just not be anymore. Whew. Not, not into dust, but nothing. Everything that is, is here because he just wants it that way. And then he says, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who holds all things together by the word of his power died. He died as a criminal and as a man, but then he rose again, and he is exalted right next to the Father, meaning he is with and of the Father, just like John said in John 1. He did not cease to be divine after the cross. All right, one more, Colossians 1, <clears throat> 15 through 20. This one's kind of my favorite, if I could pick one. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is like a, almost a summary of the stuff we've read so far. He's preeminent over all things. He's the top. He's the best. He's, he, there is nobody with more authority or more awesomeness or more greatness or more worthiness to be worshipped than Jesus. He is the top of everything. But also, he's the head of the church. He just puts that in there. He's the one meandering through the lampstands in Revelation 1. The head of the church. The church is all the redeemed ones that have been gathered together throughout all of time. Not just us. He is the head of the church. Every believer who has ever lived, all the way back to the beginning of time, are gathered together as his family, and Christ is the head of them. They are the inheritance God has given him. Now, you might say, some inheritance. But you haven't seen yourself yet of what you will be and what he is making you into. Because you will not say that about yourself or each other when you see him face to face. You will say, wow, we're pretty glorious. We're not shining as quite as bright as you. But boy, do we shine. That's what you'll say. We exist to be gathered to the Father by Jesus himself. That's why you exist. It's why you breathe. It's why your heart is beating right now. It's because you are being gathered to the Father by Jesus himself, the King. So I want to take you back to another story at the encounter between Moses and God in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. I'm not going to read it. But there, if you remember the classic story, God names himself the I Am. You have God kind of manifesting himself visually before Moses in a bush that seems to be on fire but not being consumed. Moses takes his sandals off and he talks to God and he says, who should I tell the, the Egyptians who sent me? What God sent me to tell them to let the Israelites go? And God says, tell them the I am sent you. The, that's a hard word to get your head around. It just means like the self-existent one, the one that just is more than anything else is. I am the most is that anything can be. I am. That's who I am. It's the most sacred name of God. It's rarely uttered aloud by any Jew and never casually. Yet you might not know this. Jesus used that name to refer to himself multiple times, but one super clearly. I want to read it to you. John 8, 52 to 59 says, the Jews, so before, let me give you context here. Jesus is debating with the Jews openly, and he's just told them that those who follow him will never die. And they were a little slow to understand that what he was, he's talking about eternal life. And so they have a very literal, kind of incredulous response, which we'll see. Jesus' answer to them is amazing. So here's what happens. It says, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. 
are you greater than our father Abraham? They shouldn't have asked that question. Who died? Abraham who died. And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Or we could say, who do you think you are? Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew what he was saying. There's other times when Jesus would say it on the sly. And they didn't quite understand, but this time, he's completely clear. And they say, oh, you don't get to say that. That's, we kill you for that. Later, in John 18, 1 through 11, the soldiers come with Judas and the Pharisees and the chief priests with their swords and torches and all their man-made authority to arrest Jesus and take him in for questioning and ultimately crucifying. Remember that? They come and find him in the dark at night with their torches and their chests out. We have all the permission we need to take this guy and get rid of him. And Jesus asked them, hey, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And his answer is, I am. And when he says, I am, everyone falls back and onto the ground. And then he says, let them stand back up. He says, who are you looking for again? <laughs> and then, of course, Peter, my fa- you know, favorite part of that story is Peter then thinks he's going to defend the I am with his little sword and cut somebody's ear off. With all their human power and might assembled, Jesus knocked them down with just the mention of his name. He just said his name. And all the strength of Rome and Israel put together couldn't stand up when he said his name. So there are a thousand and one implications of what we've read and looked at so far. Next week on Christmas Sunday, we'll juxtapose this with Jesus and his humanity. And when you put those together, you just almost can't contain it. Because why would he come here? Why would he come as a baby? The most helpless thing. Man, when I, I've had three of them. And I've held three little brand new, fresh out of the oven babies. They can't, don't even have the strength to hold their arms up. Arms just going all over the place. They want it to go here and it's going there. This is how this the one who spoke the world into existence came into that. 
did that for you and for his own glory. But for now, this morning, I think the only thing to do is to worship him. I think too often we just we want a lot of practical advice for our life out of scripture and I, I'm just not doing it. Not this morning. Because how how could we make it about us knowing this? How could we respond to this glorious revelation by saying, what have you done for me? Give me some advice and stay out of my life. Just make my life work better. And instead, what he wants from us, what we were created to do, was to worship him. That's all he wants. That's all you're designed for. You want joy? You want fulfillment? You want a life with meaning and purpose? Worship him. You want to know what you're built for? What, what your life should be about? The meaning of life? The meaning of your life? The purpose of everything that is? You want to know what it is? Worship him. That's it. It's not even about your gifts and getting being used by God and finding your place. Those are things are great, but you start by worshiping him. There's going to come a day when no one will prophesy because they will be hearing from his lips directly. So we worship. So I'd like to end by reading Revelation 4, 1 through 11. And then we're going to worship. We're going to, the worship team is going to do a song and we're going to sing it. But why don't we stand together and I'll read this to you. So, it's cool, having read John's gospel and what he said about Jesus, John gets to have this vision of heaven. Almost probably towards the end of his life, he's exiled, and God comes to him and lets him see into heaven. And this is how he describes part of what he sees. It says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven <clears throat> with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, representing the church, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, 
And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as if, as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that's us, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and created. Let's worship him together. 